never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Hi guys, welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is a topic that is very close to my heart. Um, I have two sons that are 20, 21, but they're still uh, at times behaving like teenagers. And I guess those teenager years, they really go to 25, isn't it? Until the frontal lobe is sort of finally, finally come back from holiday and things, okay, we might as well get to work here. Um, until then, yeah, our youngsters are not really making the best of all decisions and every single time I want to get angry with my boys I get flashbacks when I did exactly the same and it's so unfair I can actually remember fucking up doing stupid things when I was young it was mean I can't even get angry now but I've got Daryl Rogers with me who has made it his passion and his mission to help parents uh, deal with uh, with their youngsters not making the best choices in their life and helping us all, I guess, to get through those hard times. Daryl, welcome to my show. Thank you so much for having me, Stefan. Isn't it isn't it so hard? It is um we we all were young and I know I made stupid choices and I I was a dick. I was just such <laughs> an arrogant, selfish, lazy prick, honestly. Um and it's really hard because I have given those genes down to my boys. Oh boy. <laughs> oh <laughs> you, yeah. Do you feel do you do you do you roll your eyes as well? Are you such a such a parent as well? <laughs> yeah, I can relate. You know, I mean, um, I, when I think back uh, to my uh, teenage and young adult years, sometimes I wonder how I'm still here. <laughs> to see, to see. Yeah, but I mean, the problem, of course, is that the times have changed, and we nowadays it's it's different both in the attitude of, of younger people and uh the the way that maybe uh, different behaviors are accepted within their peer groups and are normalized let it be drug taking let it be doing dangerous things let it be gambling whatever it is in your part of the world and maybe we should look um to start off with at the, the core of the topic what is the chance that the teenagers uh takes drugs because my child, oh, she's ever so nice. She's so well behaved. <laughs> no, my child will never do that. What kind of figures do you have you got in your mind when it comes to drug taking mm. behavior uh, in teenagers? Well, hmm. you know, I haven't looked at any statistics mm. recently, mm. but I can just tell you from experience. Um, you know, all of our um, school campuses here in the U.S., and I'm sure it's probably not too different abroad, are crawling with drugs. Um, uh, it's worse in some schools than others, uh, mm -hmm. but it doesn't just stop at the uh, high school level. It continues on into higher education um, and <clears throat> everything from, you know, alcohol, alcohol can be a big problem, uh, Egg parties, you know, binge drinking, uh, a lot of drinking and driving, and other impaired types of impaired driving, and um, uh, but um, you know, and then and then it just goes from there to marijuana, and then on up to harder drugs. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's everywhere. And to throw a few figures in there, in the UK, um, the figures are they they have been forever doing a census where they talk where they take a few thousand youngsters every year and try to figure out what do they take, um, and it, it has been consistent for many years now. It's about ten percent of the young population in the last young I say sixteen to twenty four um, have in the last year taken hard drugs. And with hard, I don't mean a joint or a, a, a alcohol underage. No, we are talking um, heroin. We are talking cocaine. We are talking hardcore shit. One in mm -hmm. ten. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, the 
if you go to the United States, uh, 40% of the youngest, uh, youngsters on average, uh, and with their teenagers, 13 to 17, that is meant, um, are uh, taking or have taken drugs in the last year or so um and a bit bit stronger in the boys uh as you maybe would expect towards the 50 a bit little bit less with the girls but they're giving them them uh, themselves a good good appearance there um so drugs are ubiquitous drugs are everywhere and the kids are taking them end of the story right uh, it's um i was just going to add that you know here in the u.s and i'm sure it's the same um uh, abroad as well and fentanyl is a is a big problem right now um this is everywhere um mm. it seems to be one of the biggest issues we have because it does end up in other drugs or people are sold other types of substances and in a lot of times there's fentanyl in it and so we're we're having a lot of um uh, overdose deaths uh related to the the fentanyl now that's really important for those guys of you who, have, who don't really know too much about it. Fentanyl is actually a drug that I use every single day in theater. It's a very powerful opioid that we use in the right dose at the right time. And it's a lifesaver. It takes the pain away. It's gorgeous. Fantastic. I love the drug. Um, now, there is a little problem when it comes to the last 10 years or thereabouts, uh, about eight years, actually, 2013-14, the whole fentanyl crisis started. And thank you to China. And look, it is what it is, guys. Uh, the, all these labs are uh, over there in China. They are producing tons of that material um if you don't believe me go back into my interviews to ben westhoff ben westhoff has written a book called fentanyl inc in which he describes uh his four-year um investigation of that topic and it makes chilling reading and it uh, it was a lovely interview so check it out guys um in a nutshell um people making some nasty, nasty chemicals, and that is fentanyl or carfentanyl or whatever analog there is. They constantly change them um, because if you add a little compound here and there and everywhere, then it is no longer fentanyl that someone might have made illegal, but carfentanyl, which the Chinese don't care about, or, you know, so it's, there's always that kind of new development. And then that goes to Mexico or to other uh, sort of more South American cartels, which then sprinkle it liberally over the cannabis or over whatever they are. And then suddenly you have got a situation where some of the cannabis has got a little bit of an extra kick and some other parts of that same cannabis kind of thing um, is absolutely lethal because it is such an overdose thing. And that's why you've had last year in the United States, 100,000 opioid deaths alone. So that's the background to what, what uh, Daryl has been talking here. So sorry for, for mm -hmm. taking away some of the, the your, your airtime here, but I wanted to no, actually, uh, for, for so many people out there, they have no clue what was actually mm -hmm. going on in the last eight years, really. 2013-14, it sort of started with the uh, with the rave scene, and since then it has exploded. And why is that? Well, it's very easy, because it's much easier to hide a kilogram of fentanyl compared with, I don't know, the equivalent uh, in cocaine, which is much, mm -hmm. much larger. So therefore, mm -hmm. it's so much easier for people to... Kill other people. Yay. Um, right. So it's brutal. So we have, we're facing all that. So, dear parents, when you think, oh, well, I've taken drugs. <laughs> There's a beautiful a, a New Zealand a DJ made the joke one morning on air. And he said, you know, when I was young, there was killer weed. But nowadays, they smoke weed killer. Uh, and that <laughs> actually says a lot. So, guys, when we, when you're talking about drug-taking behavior of your children, that is a very, very, very different um, because the shit that they're getting compared with what you guys have been up to. So if you have got a very relaxed attitude towards drugs because 
maybe in your young time, young younger years, you actually had a, a pleasant experience with drugs. As we need to talk. So that is just setting the scene uh, with regards to the drugs that are nowadays available out there. But you don't wake up one day, Daryl, and say, hey, you know what? I think I will change my life. I think I will actually focus on drugs in our society. No one did that right. ever. Unfortunately, right. there's always a story behind behind our transformation, our motivation. Tell us a bit about your story. Okay, before I get into it, I would just like to add something to what you were what you were just saying that um, you know, I think that peer pressure has a lot to do with it. So uh, for those parents out there who are listening to this and they think, oh, that'll never happen to my child. They're so well behaved and I taught them right and all of that. You know, they they get to school and um, they're around other children who may not have been raised with the same values or they have something else going on that's, a, that's an issue. Or maybe there's something that they're coping with that they haven't talked to you about, some kind of an underlying issue. And they're looking for a um, a way to cope with that, and and along comes somebody and offers them some type of drug, and uh, it doesn't take much, you know, for them to get started and to um, to fall in with that group. Uh, particularly, I see a lot of young people who are struggling with self esteem issues, uh, lack of confidence, and um, that leads. Uh, from my experience, um, kids to um, they're more susceptible to the peer pressure because they're looking to be accepted by their peers. They want to feel accepted or part of a group. And I think that a lot of times leads to uh, drug experimentation. Um, and some people are going to be more susceptible to addiction than others. Um, you know, some people can experiment a little here, there, depending on the substance and the power of the substance and, and not really become away with an addiction, but other people will, uh, you know, the first time they're, they're hooked. Um, so, uh, you know, getting into my story, um, it, it really involves, you know, I have, uh, I've been married since uh, 1990 to my wife, Kim, and we raised two boys, Justin and Chase. They're seven years apart, and um, both of them Eagle Scouts, uh, both of them really good kids, both athletes, uh, great kids growing up, and um, Chase, uh, the older of the two, is is really what the story is all about. Um, Chase was... Uh, Chase was quite a character. He was diagnosed uh, early on uh, with ADD, ADHD. Um, and I find that to be very common when I talk to parents who have a child who's struggling with an addiction problem that they that their child has been diagnosed. It's one of the first things I asked just out of curiosity. It seems like nine times out of 10, there is an ADD, ADHD um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Diagnosis in there somewhere. And, um, uh, you know, and that can, there's a whole spectrum there, right? Um, and it's hard for me to, to nail down what the correlation is. You know, is it the drugs that they're uh, given to cope with that? Is it the medication that they're given that, that leads into it? Is it the part of the, um, you know, people who are ADD, ADHD tend to be um, impulsive. You know, that plays into it. So there are a lot of different factors there. But um, Chase just, you know, he had this motor that never shut off. It seemed like he just was going all the time full full blast and very shy, quiet, easygoing, laid back. But um, uh, he would open up one-on-one -on -one with people and in, in small groups when he felt comfortable with people and just um, class clown kind of kid, you know, and... Um, uh, very athletic, small, but fast and, and uh, great hand-eye coordination. But uh, really in the uh, 10th grade, about middle of the 10th grade, Chase began to, you know, he, he'd never been a stellar student, but he never had any trouble passing any of his classes. And uh, he was about a C, C-plus student. Um, just most of his ADD issues were um, lack of focus, just 
you know, focus issues in the classroom. And, uh, you know, he, um, like I said, good kid, never got in any trouble. But then in about the middle of the 10th grade, all of a sudden he was failing Spanish um, and some of his other grades, I noticed were, were he was struggling a little bit there and um, was beginning to become a bit rebellious at home and was getting into a little bit of trouble, nothing real serious, you know, just a couple of little things here and there, skirmishes. And I became concerned about him and I have a military background. So um, I had talked to Chase. I caught him in a few lies also, and he had never lied to me about anything that I could ever tell. I mean, he would he would tell the truth when he was a kid, even if he knew it was going to get him in trouble. Um, he was just honest like that. But now all of a sudden he was lying to me and I caught him in lies. I'm like, where's all of this coming from? And with my military background, I, I was thinking about his situation with the ADD and, and his recent behavior, how, how it was deteriorating. And I thought, you know what, I think a military school might be a good option for him. So, um, you know, he wasn't excited about the idea. And if, if he were here to tell his side of the story, he would say, Dad, maybe go to that military school. And I didn't want to go to it. But if he had pushed back a little bit and said, no, I don't really want to go there, I would have said, OK, you know. But he seemed like he had bought into it somewhat. And uh, uh, honestly, I think, you know, really, I didn't realize, but I was I was pushing him into that. I didn't realize it at the time. So he was just so easygoing and wanted to please dad that he just, you know, just let me, you know, kind of kind of push him, kind of nudge him in the direction I want. I felt like he should go. And so um, he um, he went there. He still got into a little trouble, girl trouble. You know, there, there was a, a an all girls school um, less than a mile from that <laughs> from that all boys military school, right? And, and it was a boarding school, and all these uh, rich girls go to went to school there. And sure enough, he met one on Facebook, and he and a few other kids had put this plan together to go over there. And uh, one night, and. Uh, he was the mastermind. <laughs> Good at him. Good at him. Hey, does this. And yeah. uh, she's, she's a girl. She's a really cute girl. We love her to death, you know. But um, anyway, um, he uh, he did get through there. He, he had a, an amazing um, senior year of football, he, he playing football there and, um, and got his grades up. And there was a college um, – you know, he wasn't big enough to be a D1, Division I um, college athlete prospect, but he was, um, it was a good enough athlete that uh, Division II type schools were looking at him. And um, there was a school in Illinois that offered him some scholarship money, not a full ride. They offered him some money to come to school there and play football for them. And uh, he accepted that offer. Uh, we looked at a few other schools, but that was the only one that really offered any scholarship money. And um, so he felt like they wanted him there. So he headed off to school. And uh, it wasn't long after he arrived there that Chase began to um, hang out with people who were abusing drugs and alcohol. Now, did his uh, drug experimentation start back in the 10th grade when he was having issues? I suspect it probably did, but, um, he told his mother, my wife, that, that, um, he didn't experiment with anything until he got to military school. So I don't really know, um, you know, exactly where he started, but, uh, when he got to college, man, first time he had been away from home and not under any kind of really tight supervision, and um, I was kind of, to be honest, you know, I was I was keeping tabs on him. I was spying on him a little bit, which, you know, in, in hindsight, you know, I realized that was that was I, I overstepped my bounds there. There's no doubt about that. But um, and I was just really concerned about him. I, I just had a sense he was headed in a bad direction. And pretty soon um, after he after he got there, like I said, started hanging out with kind of a rough crowd. And he was he was he started off with alcohol and marijuana and then he went to other drugs. He was experimenting with Molly. Mm. Um, I don't know what else he and most people think, oh, Molly's not that big of a deal. But I have a friend whose mm. daughter uh, went, you know, Molly ecstasy, MDMA. Mm. She went to a um, she went to a um, she was in college, a sophomore year. She went to a uh, music festival one weekend. Mm. 
and everybody was passing around Molly and she took Molly and she dotted. So, you know, I don't know that's, what else might have been in that pill. That, but. That's exactly it. That's exactly what I'm what um what led Ben Westoff to to write Fentanyl Inc. because he was a reporter mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. a rave at the rave scene and suddenly kids were starting to, uh, started to die. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what we discussed earlier on, the, the adulteration, the mixing of shit into, mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. drugs that in their own right might not necessarily be so lethal, but the right. moment you start mixing things into that, oh boy. And it, good that you say it, Molly, in your terms, uh, is uh, MDMA, as ecstasy, is a feel-good drug. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Molly could also be, <laughs> in Germany, Molly would be a Molotov cocktail, because they're a little bit more radical over there. So therefore, let's get our terminology <laughs> right here. <laughs> okay, so no, very good. So, bloody hell. Bloody hell. Um you said you kept tabs on them, uh, on him, mm-hmm. and that is very understandable. And it's a sign of love. Mm-hmm. Let's. And did you right. pick up? Did you pick up anything of that? At, oh uh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. What he did was, you do? Do it. Oh well, you know, um, uh, he was. He was. You know, I had some discussions with him, but you know, he was because I was sort of the disciplinarian even though, I mean, he knew I loved him, you know, but I was sort of the disciplinarian and uh, if he had a problem with anything, he would go to his mother, you know, and have a conversation <laughs> with her. He avoided me. <laughs> no shit, um, Sherlock, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I could say this, um, uh, just jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, it is what has happened there. And, and as we get on into the story, you know, we'll, we'll you know, you'll, people will understand what I'm, what I'm getting at here, but, um, my, my relationship with my youngest son has drastically improved. Um, I've learned how to back off and let go and let him make mistakes. And it went from me trying to prevent him from making mistakes and from me lecturing and telling him what to do and him pushing back to now he picks up the phone and calls me and says, Hey dad, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And that's the way you want it to be with your teenagers and yeah. your particularly young, your young adult children. Um, you want them calling you and asking you for advice. And that's, um, you know, mm-hmm. um, it really, it really gives you a good feeling when, when that happens. So um, we have a, but- we have a really, really good relationship now. We enjoy spending time together and doing, not that we ever had a bad relationship, but it's so much better and we're so much closer than we were. Um, but um, anyway, is let, let me to- say, let me put it like that. Um, probably you have gone through a transformation that is mm-hmm. as clear as day at night and no, I think man. that the new you, that the the Daryl today is very different from the Daryl oh, yeah. that yeah. was 10, 15 years ago. Um, definitely. And we all have got the privilege of choice. So there's one good reason that uh, the viewers are right now here glued to the to the YouTube channel or to our interview to to the to the podcast, because they are they are feeling that it is time to do something that their pain as a parent is is too too big to to bear and we have to do something so there you go bloody hell so there you are military um <laughs> what, may, I, may i ask what which rank you had achieved so i was a um i was a helicopter pilot i started out as a uh, combat medic in the South Carolina Army National Guard, and then after six years um, serving as an enlisted man, uh, got out for about six months, and then I had an opportunity to go to Army Flight School and um, and uh, became a helicopter pilot. Never deployed. Um, real close with Desert Storm, but that one was over so quickly. Um, but uh, anyway, that was my experience in the military, but um, but you've you've yeah. actually lived that life for quite some time, so therefore it's a very structured life, and it is a very, um, very powerful, 
not powerful but yes powerful once you've achieved a certain rank and once uh, once you're actually looking after someone um underneath you um there are certain ways you do that and certain ways you learn in the military to do that so it's only logical that you transfer those skills and those attitudes also towards the younger uh, younger beings <laughs> the younger soldiers in your house <laughs> so there are pluses and minuses that come with that you know and you, you try to uh, pass along the pluses <laughs> mm. um my brother my brother my father both served also my brother served as a helicopter pilot in vietnam um, as an army helicopter pilot and uh, my brother my father served in the navy in world war ii so um uh, my brother and i are 18 years apart by the way he's 18 years older so uh, um but um yeah um uh you know back to chase's story uh he 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 dropped out uh, the uh, he dropped out of college the middle of his uh, or this the second semester of his freshman year so not long after he went back after the christmas break he dropped out he, he moved back home immediately gravitated to a very rough crowd at home um was not trying to do anything to improve himself was not you know offered hey let me help you i'll, I'll um I'll pay if you want to go and learn a trade at a community college or, mm. you know, there's the military. And, you know, I was just trying to lay out all the options for him. And he wasn't interested in anything. And he was uh, staying out late. Sometimes he would be gone two or three days at a time, wouldn't communicate with us. And my wife said, look, you're an adult now. You're not going to school. Uh, you need to try to do something. But uh, here's the deal. If you're going to live with us, one of the ground rules is you have to, if you're going to be gone somewhere overnight, you have to at least communicate with us and give us some idea of when we can expect you home and where you are. Um, and he wouldn't do that. Um, and so, you know, he'd been gone for several days and had not communicated. And you try, we try to call and text and we get no response. And I knew what was going on, but, um, you know, I, I couldn't really talk to him about it. And so um, he pulled that stunt one day, being gone about three days with no communication. He showed up at the front door. One of his friends had their car was out on the curb running, you know, and they let, dropped him off. And um, he came to the front door and I wouldn't let him in because I felt like to let him in at that point would be to continue to enable his self-destructive behavior. And, you know, I questioned myself whether it was the right thing to do or not, but I, I just felt in my heart it was the right thing to do. And it was very difficult to watch him get back in that car and ride away with his friend, not knowing if I would ever see him again or not. And um, I kept up with him on social media. He would post pictures. He was losing weight rapidly. He wasn't very big to begin with, uh, especially for a football player. He was only like 5'10", 5'11", 5'10", 160 pounds, 155 pounds. And, um, but now he's this rail thin, pale, glassy eyed. Uh, some of the pictures he would post, it would look like, you know, he was with his friends in a hotel room. They're all strung out on drugs. Uh, that was the appearance. And that was the Im impression I got. And I was very concerned about him and, so I was just racking my brain. What am I going to do? He's going to end up in jail or dead soon if I don't do something. And the word intervention popped into my head. And I didn't know anything about interventions. I didn't know anything about addiction because I had not experienced that before in my family. And so this was all just blindsiding me. And uh, I had just surfing channels i had come across this tv show intervention a few times and i never really watched enough of it to really know much about it but i got the idea i got the gist of it so i began to do google searches for interventions and i ran across a company ran you know i looked at several different ones and i ran across one company and i called them and asked them and uh if they would do an intervention for chase and i, and I ended up hiring them and they sent um a gentleman to our house to do an intervention for Chase. And um, I didn't even know where Chase was. You know, he's on the air, the, the interventionist is on the airplane making his way to our home mm. in North Carolina. 
and um, he was coming out of Chicago, and um, I didn't even know where Chase was, but he's he started quizzing me, like, where do you, where are some of the normal hangouts? Where do you think you would go? And and we started kind of brainstorming, and um, I went out to the mall, and to the local mall, and um, to the food court, and walked in, and walked right up to him. He was right there. I mean, my, I knew right where he would be. I just, you know, uh, interventionist was really good with things like that, you know, uh, with helping me think through those kind of things. But I walked right up to him and started talking to him and said, hey, you know, your mom misses you. And again, a lot of this was coaching from the interventionist. Your mom misses you. She loves you. Come home, you know, take a shower, um, hang out for a little while, you know, no pressure. You can come and go as you please. Just come on back and and say hello to mom, get something to eat, get a hot shower, you know. Mm. And, um, you know, we got the team together, the intervention team, and uh, he showed up before we were ready and uh, was back out the door really quickly. But uh, then he came back a little bit later. I think it was the next day and caught me off guard. And while he's taking a shower, I'm texting all of the people on the intervention team, you know, get over here, you know, and they, so everybody showed up and, and we had the intervention and the, the interventionist was really masterful at, you know, the whole time we're re we read our letters and oh man, everybody was in tears. And um, the whole time he's just shaking his head. No, 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 I don't have it. I'm not addicted. I don't have a drug problem. I'm not going to treatment. I don't need to go to treatment. And my wife, uh, the interventionist had assigned her the task of reading the bottom line letter, which was, you know, if we're offering treatment and if you refuse treatment, then you're, you can't stay here anymore and we're not going to help you until you're ready to, to accept treatment. And she's praying, oh God, please don't let me have to read this letter. I do not want to have to read this letter. And um, so he, the, the guy just kept, on until he knew all the, I mean, better than any used car salesman you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> he finally got, he finally got Chase to, to say, yeah, okay, I'll go to treatment. And, wow. um, but, but he said, but I want my car. Well, I had a car that, um, that my dad, my mother had left handwritten note that the car belonged to my dad, but my mother left this handwritten note that Chase was to get the car. And my brother, having power of attorney, kind of seeing the handwriting on the wall with Chase, I guess, um, had had um, given had signed the title over to me. So it was officially my automobile, but we had let Chase drive it some. But I had taken it away from him while you know when he before he went to treatment. So he's using the car as a bargaining chip. I don't want the car. I want the car. I want the car. So we had to agree that he would get the car if he went to treatment. And his whole idea was, I'm going to treatment. They're going to drug test me, and they're going to find out I'm just fine, and I'm coming back, and I'm getting my car, and this is over with. And uh, so he goes to pack his bags, and the interventionist says, hey, follow him back there. So I follow him to his room, and he's packing his bags. And I noticed it looked like he was kind of hunched over, and he was writing something. He was writing a phone number on his arm. He was, you know, he'd been communicating via text message or something with one of his friends. So he goes to the bathroom and I'm thinking, well, I'm not following him into the bathroom, you know, and he closes the door and I hear the water turn on. And I knew as soon as I heard the water turn on, I, I reached for the doorknob and the door is locked and he had gone out the window. So... Uh, I come back out and one of my best friends is sitting there and his job as assigned by the interventionist was if Chase bolted, he was to go after him. So my friend takes off running and I'm like, wait, you don't even know. We don't even know what direction he went or anything. So we rode around, he and I rode around looking for Chase. And in the meantime, he called back and said, okay, um, I'm ready to go to treatment now. Um, but you definitely have to give me my car, you know. And so, uh, so he goes to treatment and, um, he was in treatment, you know, he was in treatment 30 days. Um, and it was a program that the interventionist had directed us to, uh, he was in treatment 30 days in South Florida. 
And uh, he went from that into a halfway house. And a lot of the halfway houses, I mean, some of it was just chase, but some of them were not very well managed. And mm -hmm. he bounced around to a number of different halfway houses, spent a total of about nine months in Florida and managed to get himself kicked out of this last halfway house he was in. And so I drove down and there's all an old another side story behind that, but mm. I drove down and picked him up and he moved back in. Well, I know now that was a mistake. I should have never let him move back in with us. Um, and I can explain that later, but I just feel, feel like that, that, you know, when parents do that, I feel like that usually ends up contributing to a relapse. Shit. So, well, but um, that would have been exactly what I would have done. I, uh, you you really? yearn to take him in your arms. Yep. You yearn Absolutely. to be there yep. for him yep. because yep. you, so far, I felt so helpless just listening to mm. you. Oh. Man, that, that is the number one, the, the three words that I hear parents in this situation use the most, alone. They feel alone because they don't know that there are other people or they don't know where to find other people mm are going through the same thing and they don't know who to talk to um, because other people a lot of other people around them don't understand what they're going through number two they feel helpless and number three they feel hopeless mm -hmm. and it's one of the worst feelings it's like you have butterflies exactly it's like you have butterflies in the pit of your stomach that never go away and when the phone rings and you don't know who's calling or it's ringing late at night, the first thought that pops into your head is, is that the police calling? Mm. Is he in jail or is he dead? Mm. Those are the things that pop into a parent's mind in that situation. So, wow. anyway, um, I, I feel for you if you're in that situation. I know what you're going through because I've been there. Um, and, and I've been to the funerals of other young people um, of parents that I know because of the type of work that I do now, which I'll, I'll, I'll explain. But um, man, so Chase, he moves back in at home. And over, you know, it, when he first came back home, we felt like we had the old Chase back. This is the guy that we all knew before he started using drugs. You know, he he was just uh, he he got a job. He liked his work. He was staying away from the people who had been a bad influence before. He he um, he was staying sober. He was he was going to IOP intensive outpatient care two nights a week, like group therapy, because he wanted to get better. He wanted to get better. I could see the desire in him. But as the months went by, he began to relapse. And I'm going to tell you something. When he was living here with us. I felt this weight on my shoulders every single day. I've been self-employed most of my adult life. So a lot of times I was working from home and I just felt this weight on my shoulders. My wife, she was at work. Now I felt this weight on my shoulders. Like I've got to keep Chase entertained so I can keep him out of trouble. And I just couldn't do it. There's just no, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to do anything else. I would have to be his full-time entertainment, you know, like, hey, let's go fishing today, Chase. Hey, let's go. Do, and which we did a lot of that. I spent a lot of time with him when he was a little kid, hunting, fishing, camping, you know, doing Boy Scout stuff, um, you know, hiking, you name it. We spent a lot of time together, uh, sports, you know, all of that. And uh, I never missed his any of his games. If I did, it was rare. It was very, very rare. And I had a really good reason to miss it. But um, I was there for all of that. And um, anyway, but I felt this huge weight on my shoulders. And I just could not live up to that. I couldn't I couldn't do it. And, um, and finally, he came, came to me one day and he said, Dad, I'm headed in a bad direction again. Um, uh, I'm hanging around a bad crowd. And I said, I know, Chase, because I could sense it. As a parent, I could sense it. But I didn't know anything about addiction at the time. I didn't know what to do about it. And um, he said, the only thing I know to do is I've got to get away from these people who are a bad influence on me. And I've decided I'm going to move, moving back to, to Florida, to the area where I was in treatment. And he told me when he was planning to leave, and so I told my wife, Kim, and she made Chase promise that he would come by and have a meal with us before leaving for Florida. Well, the day came that he was supposed to come by and eat with us, and he didn't show up. 
it's getting later in the afternoon and we went ahead and ate and uh uh or maybe we didn't i don't remember now i just know we we decided to move to the living room at some point the three of us because it was still fairly early but he should have should have been here it was it was getting around five o'clock and uh in the afternoon and we're sitting there watching TV, uh, surfing our phones, just chatting a little bit. And I had a phone call from one of my friends. I didn't want to disturb Kim and Justin with my phone conversation. So I went outside. Nice day out. May 29th, 2014. Beautiful day. And I'm in my front yard on the cell phone with my friend. And a police cruiser pulled up to the curb in front of our house. And the officer got out of his car. Chase had never been in any kind of trouble with the law before. But... Um, I knew he was heading in a bad direction, right? And so this officer's coming up my driveway. I see, I've noticed he had a clipboard in his hand. And I told my friend, I got to go. Apparently, Chase is in some kind of trouble. So I hang up with my friend, and I go to meet this officer, and it's there in our driveways where he told me, Mr. Rogers has been a bad wreck out on I-40, and your son Chase died at the scene. Uh, man, right where we were standing, I would throw, almost in that exact same spot, I would throw him pass after pass after pass, throw him just out of reach, just to watch him use his athleticism and make diving catches. And, you know, there was a little bit of confusion about with the officer about where he was because there were other people in the car and he had me confused with one of the other families when he first arrived. And so now I'm thinking when he, when he told me Chase was dead, I'm thinking, did I hear him right? And my brain's kind of playing tricks on me. And I said, I finally looked at him and I, and I asked him, is he dead? He's dead. And he kind of dropped his head. Said, yes, sir. And he asked me if I would like for him to go in with me. You know, well, first he asked me if, if, uh, if there's anybody inside that I would like for him to notify. I said, well, my wife and my other son are right there in the living room, but that's my job. Let me do that. I felt like that was my responsibility. And um, he asked me then, well, can I go in with you for support? And I agreed to that. And I go through the front door of my home, look immediately to my right. There's my wife, Kim, in the recliner. And this officer comes in the door right behind me. Split second, you know, I made eye contact with, with Kim. Our son, Justin, was um, back on, in, on the sofa back in the corner. And a split second later, this officer comes in behind me right after I made eye contact with Kim. And I can see the expression on her face change to one of terror as soon as she saw this officer come in the door because she knew whatever I was going to say wasn't going to be good. And I just had to come out and tell her, honey, there's been a bad wreck and, and Chase is dead. And of course, we all cried for a long time. It took a while to get settled down. And then uh, we began to ask the officer questions about what had happened. He didn't have a lot of answers that day. Uh, we heard a rumor, I'm pretty sure that it's accurate, that uh, there was a big going away party the night before. Chase and a lot of his friends uh, consumed a lot of drugs and alcohol at that party. They woke up late the next morning. They felt hungover. And so they decided, hey, let's go to the park and smoke some marijuana to help with our nausea. Then they got into the car. And um, the, the, I know they did go to the park and I know they did smoke marijuana. All of that's in the police report. Then they got into the car. She was, the driver was 18. He let her, he had dated her at one time. A uh, really cute girl. He let, let her get behind the wheel of his car. He got in the front passenger seat and, and this other kid got in the back seat. Uh, they left the park. They made one quick stop to grab a bite to eat right out onto I-40 in rush hour traffic. Uh, they only went about two miles, and she lost control of his car in a curb running about 70 miles per hour, spun out of control, left the road, struck a tree. Uh, Chase died instantly. Um, it took emergency personnel almost an hour to get the three of them out of the vehicle. It was such a mangled mess. Um, they transported the other two with serious injuries to the hospital right away. And then over the next several weeks, they recovered to the extent that they could return home to continue their recovery there. But then um, seven months after the wreck and only a few weeks prior to what would have been her first court appearance, the, the girl that uh, was driving Chase's car that day died um, after a fire broke out in her apartment. Um, the fire chief said based on his department's investigation, they believe that she poured gasoline all over the floor of her apartment, stood in the middle of it and ignited it. There were two 
uh, suicide notes that were found. And uh, uh, we had gotten to know her mother, um, really nice lady. And now, you know, seven months after Chase died, now we're attending her funeral. Um, and there's this whole ripple effect of how many people were just, you know, affected by this in, in just terrible ways. But um, uh, it's a hard story to tell. And uh, I've been doing public speaking uh, about prevention, telling Chase's story for a long time um, since 2015, um, 2016, 2016. And um, I've told the story probably over a thousand times. I don't know how many times, probably more than that. But uh, uh, it's hard for me to get through it and not get and not get emotional still at, at different points. So, uh, but I, I tell the story because I feel like that there's so many life lessons embedded in that story. Lessons for us as parents, lessons for the kids that are out there. They're listening to young people or people that are struggling with addiction. Um, man, I, you know, I speak to, I, I do some speaking for North Carolina Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and I'm usually speaking to people who have a DWI. And I let those people know because I know every time I speak to that group, there's there's always people in that in that group that, that are struggling with an addiction. And I let them know that I love them and that I care about them and that they're important, their lives matter and that they can beat this, but that they need to get rid of the shame and go out there and get the help that they need to reach out for help. And you would be surprised how many people walk up to me after I, after I say that and when it's all over and, and want to talk to me and like want to find a treatment program, let me help them point them in the right direction or can I talk to their parents and things like that? And uh, uh, anyway, um, you know, it is the, the problem people, you know, I, I, I would, I would say here's one way that I've changed. I used to be very, very judgmental of people who were struggling with addiction. <laughs> and I have learned that, you know, now I'm like, look, everybody has problems. I've been humbled in a lot of ways <laughs> over the past few years. And I'm like, you know what? Everybody has problems, including me. And we just have different kinds of problems. So look, it's, it's not something to be ashamed of. In fact, the sooner you can talk about it and get it out there, that's the first step to, to getting, you know, to getting control of this, of this thing. Um, so anyway, uh that's my story no, no. and now uh, go ahead go ahead and we'll, we'll talk about the other things uh, oh please later. wow uh you could uh i'm immediately tempted to challenge you um by saying well by holding your mirror in front of the face because if i look at my own story i was a workaholic long before i was an alcoholic so sometimes mm -hmm. there are addictions out there where we run Absolutely, away from yeah. our own traumas and we have just disguised them into something really good. I'm a self-made mm -hmm. man. I mm -hmm. work 16 hours a day, 18 hours, 20 hours. I don't need to sleep. Well, then why are you doing that? Because you're running away right. from your own demons. Let me guess. Yeah. Let's talk about your childhood trauma or about the mm -hmm. core beliefs that were in, instilled into you. So some addictions, mm -hmm. they actually look very good on paper or they look very good in, in especially in the United States, in this kind of self-made man or self-made woman uh, kind right. of thing. So, you know, it is, it's addiction comes in many, many ways. Why Absolutely. do we have such an obesity crisis? Because we are treating ourselves with sugar, because you deserve mm -hmm. it. And I'm as guilty as charged. I moved mm -hmm. from probably if I look at at the way that I used abusive things in my lifetime, I think it started very early with sugar, probably as a child, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. came work and workaholic, then came the alcohol, uh, and then once I was in rehab, unfortunately, my rehab um, was accepting that sugar is the lesser evil. So there was always chocolate around. There was always that. And probably for a year afterwards, I ate these gummy snakes 
I ate them it by the packet. Man, I was, I mean, <laughs> hell, we now we now know that sugar is basically as addictive as cocaine and more so. Um, so that, these are the realities. So when we talk addiction, we are talking not you injecting heroin. No, we are talking mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. about uh, a style of behavior that we use to typically escape pain or l- search for that ah often that that ah the feel good kind of dopamine it's rush dopamine release yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. so therefore i i dare to say that most people if we were to take a really good look at most people around us you are bloody mm-hmm. addicts okay oh yeah yeah so therefore, and that is so important, and people don't realize that. They, they think they, they have got this, this cliche, this kind of Hollywood, you need to be a, a beggar on the street with sauce in your face and, and right. vomit on your lips. Only then can you be an, an, a, an addict. Well, no, hmm. no, 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 no. Um, no. And, and I guess that's what you are doing. I mean, you are going out there. You are actually showing those different aspects you're teaching uh others about addiction and what you're doing is you're demystifying it you are you're opening up minds often with a bloody uh <laughs> you need a sledgehammer for some minds but right uh, sometimes yeah. sometimes just the story told in the right way at the right time you don't need a sledgehammer because it just falls apart like like a very very breakable ceramic it just bing suddenly the the there's a chink in the armor and suddenly suddenly people begin to realize the truth that we all are are susceptible to those kind of things and yeah Wow. I use uh, I use three pair of shoes when I do this one talk for a prop, and I talk about I started out by talking about I haven't walked a mile in your shoes. So I don't know what your life has been like, so it wouldn't be right, wouldn't be fair, it wouldn't be right for me to judge you unfairly. By the same token, you've not walked a mile in my shoes, and those shoes one is a pair of Chase's football cleats, another is a pair of shoes that I wore to his funeral. And the third is a pair of shoes that represents the driver in that car, the girl that was wow. driving that car. And I come back to the shoes at the end and I explain all of that. And it's just, it's a very effective way of breaking through because I used to go give those talks and I could tell that you could just cut the tension with a knife in that room. You know, you could tell they, they felt like they were being judged. Uh-huh. Um, they, they weren't there. They were there because they wanted to keep their driver's license, you know, by going through these steps mm-hmm. and listening to my story was part of that. But um, I learned how to do that in men and, and my whole attitude changed. And then I learned how to use that, that analogy and that prop and man, it just broke down walls. Wow. That has been so amazing. Um, and um, it just, it just, it, it, helps me in my healing process when I can connect with people like that, you know, and, and uh, feel like I've made, even if it's just a little bit of difference, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm, uh, I started uh, with um, a PAL group. Someone directed me to PAL um, a while back. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of PAL, but it's parents of addicted loved ones. It's, it's a support group for parents with uh, children who are addicted to drugs or alcohol. Um, and, um, it, you know, it's a nonprofit. So what I do there is, is volunteer work. Um, but I've learned a lot from that experience. And so I went, I got certified to be a family recovery coach to work with parents who have children who are addicted. And, um, uh, there's so many things that the parents can learn, that will put the odds in their favor for a better outcome. There's never any guarantees in the, in this when you're talking about drug addiction, because just like we were talking about earlier with the fentanyl, I mean, some of these drugs are so powerful now, um, and kids don't always know what they're getting. They, they think they're Absolutely. getting uh, one type of pill or something, and they're just laced with fentanyl. And Absolutely. You know, yeah, so, uh, so there are no guarantees. Um, 
ever. There's never never any guarantees, but but um, certainly there are things parents can do to put the odds in their favor. You know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. But if they find themselves in in these shoes with a child who is addicted to drugs or alcohol, then um, certainly there are steps they can take. And I found I find that most parents rescue and enable. And so it's a very common thing because we, you know, we're we're conditioned to it's just a parenting instinct to when our kids are little to protect them and rescue them uh, to an extent, you know, and, and there's always a balance there that you have to strike. Uh, when you do too much for someone, um, you you do more to harm them than to help them. When you do things for them that they could be and should be doing for themselves, then you're holding them back from the growth that they need to experience. And so it's a fine line because uh, what parents are scared of is like, oh, well, if I kick my kid out of the house, and I'm not saying they should do that. It, it's, it's situational. It, this is something that's situational. They need a lot of guidance on, in my opinion. But if they come to that point where they go, well, I'm going to tell my kid they have to move out. Um, you know, there's a lot of fear there that they have that if I do that, they're going to, uh, if it's a girl, uh, they may resort to prostitution um, or uh, they may overdose or they may die in a, in a uh, wreck or some other type of drug related incident. And then they feel like I will never be able to forgive myself if that happens. I will blame myself. And so, so they they they're paralyzed by this fear of taking action. And it prevents them from sometimes taking the kinds of actions that they should take. And that's so hard, isn't it? Uh, it, is, it is it's very difficult. Yeah. And but the only way that I see is right to actually deal with such a scenario is by talking about it and not talking about with with your friend who might have no clue about about addiction or about what you're going through or depression or all those kind of things or if they have got a clue they might have never worked through their own trauma and therefore they might have got a very unhealthy attitude um towards you so only because they're a good friend and maybe have given you really wise advice let's say for an investment etc when it comes to mental health i don't think so um so therefore i think the key thing is you are so vulnerable and so much is at stake that i strongly strongly advise any one of you out there who is in that situation get get help Find a, find yes. people who have been in the same situation mm -hmm. and who are now willing to share their advice. And uh, people like you, Daryl, um, there is, if we say that 40% of the youngsters have taken drugs, um, if we say that this is such a prevalent issue, therefore, guys, do you really think you're alone? Do you truly think that the lies that your mind tells you that this is such a shame, such a disgust, you could never talk about it because you're the only one that ever happened to, do you really think that bullshit is true? No, no. If you look around your neighborhood, if you can look out of the window and if you see 10 different houses, I swear to you, probably half of them will have gone at any one stage uh, through that. And maybe one or two of them are going right now, right now, through the same shit. And they feel as alone and as helpless. Now, I'm not suggesting go around their neighborhood and, and knock on doors. That doesn't. <laughs> no, you're, that, these are not the people that you want to attract. <laughs> but you actually want to find people who can help you who can ask you the right questions so that your brain comes up with the right answer because the answers are all there. Ultimately, we need the guidance. And that is that is something that you are nowadays doing, Daryl. You're going out there and helping people. Um, if if people say, wow, yeah, this, this guy seems to know what he's doing, where can people find you? 
they can go to thefamilyrecoverycoach.com um, and uh, they can look me up on, on a number of different social media platforms. Believe it or not, I have uh, TikTok. <laughs> I, have some, I have some really good TikTok videos out there. <laughs> oh, good on you. I can't wait to see you dancing. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. This is, and this, this is, again, I love what you're doing there because uh, for for you and me and our age group, you're probably thinking TikTok, yeah, right. Right, but yeah. Having said believe that, it or not, yeah, believe it or not, I get there are a lot of people in the right age category who are watching my videos on TikTok and and commenting. And, um, you know, I have one video that has 300,000 views. Bloody um, hell. Close to 4,000 people following me on TikTok. Yeah. And I've, 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 I haven't even done anything lately. And it is the thing's been up there less than six months. So I, I think it's about right. Yeah. But, um, but yeah. Uh, Daryl Rogers, D-A-R-R-Y-L-R-O-D-G-E-R-S. And they can uh, they can Google me or they can go to different social media platforms and look and uh, um, and find me. Beautiful. Guys, look down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast because all of his informations are down there in the show notes. And what have you got to lose? Please get in touch with Daryl. Or... Ask around um, if you if you feel nah, this is not my thing, those kind of internet things, no. Then go to your family physician, go to your GP and see what resources are there immediately around there, uh, around you. You might be surprised that there is something in your close vicinity. Um, I was surprised. Uh, I had no idea about uh, rehabilitation services uh, around me. And in reality, two and a half hours away, um, there was this most superb facility that helped me to get my shit sorted. And I owe them my life. Regrettably, that facility is no longer in action in the way it was then. And so it is, that is a shame, but it was there for me when I needed it. And therefore, right now, there might be the solution to your problems, or at least the start of a new journey waiting for you immediately on your doorstep. You just don't know. So therefore, start being honest to yourself, which then allows you to be open and honest with others. There is no shame with that. It's That's normal. Right. It's absolutely normal um, that that things don't work out as planned. It is not okay to keep your mouth shut, to whip yourself in a bloody frenzy and and, and be full of shame and guilt, etc. No. Right now, you as a parent have got the power of choice. You can choose to put your big girl's or boy's pants on and actually be open and honest and seek help and out of the hopeless and helpless and alone might become a person who is growing stronger, who is addressing maybe your own demons and your own problems. Maybe you are actually part of the problem whilst you, while you're, uh, because, sorry, <laughs> maybe you're part of the problem for your youngster. Maybe your, your type of education or your, your, your style of parenting might contribute to that, rightly or wrongly so. It doesn't matter. It always, always takes you to tango. So um, there is a chance for you to grow. There's a chance for your young uh, human to recover, to to grow, and it's beautiful. It is a journey waiting for you. So what right now looks like the absolute chaos might actually be the opportunity for your family to become stronger and become a true family, a, a real family who has gone for shit and is now living uh, the, their lives to the fullest and tell the tale. So please, guys, you're not alone. Um, there's so much help out there. Start looking, start start t dialing 
phone numbers, look around on the internet for the, the right groups um, and for the right help. And if you don't know where to start, down there, Daryl Rogers, you've got the, all the, the, the information there. Daryl, I'm so grateful for you that you came onto my show. Thank you so much. If there was one message you could send back to the younger dad that you were, mm -hmm. what would that be? I would say to create an environment that would be where my kids would feel more comfortable coming to me to talk to me about, about issues. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you can be, um, doesn't mean you have to be soft as a parent and, and not, you know, hold certain, hold them to certain standards, but you need, you need to make sure that they know that if they come to you with a problem, that you're not just going to come crashing down on them, that you're going to love on them and that you're going to try to understand what the problem is and help them through it. Beautiful. Beautiful. Daryl, thank you so much for, for all the work you're doing out there. You're truly a man who's making this world a better place. One interview, one speech, one intervention at a time. And that is so important because we, we all have the power to make this world a better place. Some of us are, have gone through the darkness therefore we appreciate the light so much and in turn we become the light in the darkness of someone else and that is the most beautiful legacy i guess you can you can leave on this earth to make a difference for others so it was an honor to have you, you on my show daryl thank you so much and it was you guys pleasure to be here thank you <laughs> you guys out there look after yourself and live with passion bye Bye -bye. I never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Turn around.